3: Welcome to Little Atoms on Resonance 104.4 FM, a live talk show based around ideas of the Enlightenment.
2: Little Atoms is presented by Neil Denny, Padraig Reedy, Richard Sanderson and Rebecca Watson, as well as regular mystery guest presenters.
3: Little Atoms makes no claims to balance. We actively promote science, freedom of expression, scepticism and secular humanism. This means we can often end up talking about superstition, religious fundamentalism, censorship and conspiracy theory. Our guests bring ideas that are challenging, sometimes controversial, often polemical, but always interesting. good evening. Welcome to the first Little Atoms of 2010. Tonight with me, Neil Denny, and with Rebecca Watson. And before we actually get into the show properly, our last show before Christmas, our Nine Lessons and Carol's special, has caused something of a complaint. So basically, Rebecca's going to talk about this first of all.
2: That's right. Thank you, Neil. Um, we do take these things very seriously because here in Little Adams we do try to strive for journalistic integrity and and scientific integrity as well so we take email responses very seriously so after our last show this email came to us from Jim Jim writes the interview about the LHC was unfortunately what one would expect from a high school student trying to get by without research circulating kittens is not possible since you have to use charged particles, it's all magnetic steering and acceleration. It is a very uninformed and dumb question." Of course, Jim was referring there to our interview with Brian Cox, in which we discussed the, the Large Hadron Collider and whether or not one could stick two kittens inside the collider and what would then happen. So we, we didn't realize at the time that it's not, in fact, possible to accelerate two kittens to the appropriate speed. and. For that reason, we'd like to apologize and also to correct the record um, by having Professor Brian Cox on the show today to discuss uh, the LHC, um, any plans or research he might have done on a large kitten collider, and uh, any other science that he's currently working on. So, welcome to the show, uh, Professor Brian Cox. Thank you. I think Jim's being a bit pedantic there because
0: you can charge a kitten. By rubbing it on your jeans, you know it's not too difficult to charge a kitten. The problem with a kitten is that they're t- <laughs> they're quite massive. There are too many protons in. So I think he's just actually he's focused on the wrong thing. Right. I could You can charge a kitten up to really very high potential actually by connecting it to a plug socket if it's appropriately earthed, and you know it'd be fine.
2: Um- have you, have you actually done any, <laughs> any hands-on experiments with that sort of thing? I wouldn't thing? put
0: my hands on the damn thing if it was charged up to a million volts. <laughs> I'd leave it to <laughs> prickle. <prequel. laughs> uh, this I thought you said we were going to talk about serious science here. Oh, Let's we are. Yeah, yeah, we after are. The, we've got over the... Yeah. We have some other Jims. questions. James focusing on That's the wrong well. thing. It's okay. the mass of the kitten that I objected to, if you remember. That's in, true. In, rather than the um, neutral nature of it. Well, thank you for,
3: for putting the record straight, Brian. So, okay, so now we can move on to the to the first little of 2010, and I will introduce Brian properly for anybody who, <laughs> one or two listeners who might not be aware who he is. Professor Brian Cox is a particle physicist, a Royal Society Research Fellow, and a professor at the University of Manchester. He is a member of the High Energy Physics Group at the University of Manchester, and works on the ATLAS experiment at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. He is best known to the public as the presenter of numerous science programmes for the BBC, including the upcoming Seven Wonders of the Solar System. And he recently co-authored a book called Why Does E Equal MC Squared?
0: Which has a cat on the front. (laughs) Actually, Jim, (laughs) Jim, you're listening. (laughs) You can't tell whether it's charged or neutral. Um, um.
3: So let's talk about, Brian, let's talk about um, the the LHC in proper science terms. So what does it do?
0: Um, it, well, it accelerates protons around. It's, it's 27 kilometres in circumference, so it's about what 100 metres below the surface of Geneva. And we accelerate protons to 99.999999% the speed of light, and they so go that, around. Is that the, accurate it's pretty accurate, percent. actually. Yeah, that's about the right number of nines. And I think there might be a one at the end of that. Jim will correct us if it's right. It is 99.999999% the speed of light. So they go around the ring 11,000 times a second at that speed when it's running at full energy. And then we collide them together. 11,000 times a second. 11,000 times a second around the 27 yeah. kilometers. Um, which looks like, actually, because of relativistic effects, something like, I think it's about three meters to the protons. So it gets, there's this wonderful effect called a Lorentz contraction, which means that if you're traveling very close to the speed of light relative to something else, mm-hmm. then that, that, that's something. So if you're the proton, then it looks like the ring's flying around very fast close to the speed of light. So it shrinks. And so it looks like something like, I think it's about three meters to the protons, so slightly off subject, but interesting bit of relativity. one of these protons on <laughs> yeah. the, show to the talk other thing about is time passes seven thousand times more slowly for mm-hmm. them than it does for the the people sitting there. so it's ultra relativistic, and um we we do that so we can collide them together and recreate the conditions that were present less than a billionth of a second after the universe began. And we can do that many times a second, up to 600 million times a second, actually. So you can keep pulling these numbers out of a hat. <laughs> it's an astonishing achievement. The reason we do it is that we found that through experiment over the last century or so, that the further back in time you look to the Big Bang, so in, in a sense, I suppose, the higher the energy or the higher the temperature you go to to look at the universe, the simpler it appears. And so if you really want to understand not only the building blocks of the universe, the particles that make it up, but the forces that stick it together, then this is the best way of doing it. So it's really mainline physics, understanding how the forces of nature work, Mm -hmm. how the universe evolved by experiment, by actually doing it, recreating these. It'd be wrong to say Big Bangs. It's kind of a PR thing to say, (laughs) but recreating these conditions um, as often as you can, and, and making precision measurements of them.
2: What, what do you expect to to find? What, what sort of results are you hoping to get?
0: Well, we know, because you can't just build one of these things because they cost $6 billion or something like that. So you can't just build it for a laugh and say, hope, hope we see something. You know, we, we know where our current picture of the laws of nature breaks down. And it's a, a particular energy, which is... Um, you could say 1.4 TeV. So so an electron volt is the amount of energy an electron gets if you accelerate it through a potential difference of 1 volt. So you get a 9-volt battery, you can make an electron go to 9 electron volts. Well, an energy of about 1.4 million million electron volts, we know that something happened in the universe. So that's like a temperature, a very high temperature. And what happened was that mass got generated and made its appearance in the universe. So there's some mechanism that we think happened in the early universe that gave the particles that make up you and me mass and left some particles, like photons, particles of light, massless they travel through the universe at the speed of light. So it's a fundamental occurrence in the early universe. And we know where to look for that phenomena because we've, through experiments over the last, let's say, 50 years we've seen where that interesting, profound thing occurs but we don't know what did it. Um, that one theory is that there's a thing called the Higgs particle that many people have heard of. This thing called gets called the god particle sometimes if you want to sell a book with it on the front and let the people buy it who don't like creationists or something, or Kitt- like creationists. I yeah, bit. yeah, it's that kind of stuff. But but it's the the Higgs theory is a theory for the origin of mass in the universe. But whatever nature has chosen to 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 do that, um, we know where to look, and the LHC goes there. So without doubt, you you see that process in action, whatever it may be, and it may be the Higgs, or it may be something we haven't thought of.
2: What what's the timeline?
0: Well. Particle physics is essentially quantum mechanics. And so you bang things together and a different thing happens every time. So you, the, the job of the LHC is to bang protons together a lot. And, you know, one in every, I don't know what the number is, let's say 10 billion, probably more, probably 1,000 billion, trillion collisions, something interesting might happen. right? Like you might produce a Higgs particle so you could see it. So basically, the particle physics is the job of colliding as many protons together as you can, billions and billions and billions of them, accumulating the data over months and years, and then sifting through it for something interesting. So if I was to guess in an unscientific way, uh, if the LHC works well, you might say within two or three years, you you should have some hints of um, that process. But one thing that's worth saying is that every particle accelerator that we've built, and I've worked on three now, have become famous for discovering something unexpected. So so whilst you build the LHC you know that the origin of mass in the universe is there there are other things that might be sitting there like dark matter. We know that the universe is full of stuff that we don't understand because we can see the way that galaxies move around and and interact with each other Um, that's probably a new form of particle we think that's not been detected yet we we might make those things and see them we might discover extra dimensions in the universe and get some signposts to questions like why is gravity such a weak force of nature you know there's a huge amount of physics that we don't understand and these machines are the way to give you a chance of answering those questions so there's some definite things and some wonderful things that might happen that you you never know
3: let's just get back to you mentioned dark matter and we were talking before about the idea of the higgs particle being possibly what gives mass to other particles and, and dark matter is this famous sort of hypothetical thing, or although it looks like yeah. somebody might have found some.
0: a signature for this dark matter, yeah, in, in an American experiment, mm. uh, it's not, yeah. you know, it's one or two events, and, and it wouldn't tell you what it was. It would just, the idea is that if it exists, then there's more of it than there is the stuff mm. that makes up the stars and planets we can see. And uh, we would be drifting through it now. So, So in the room you are sat in, there's dark matter particles flying around, very heavy. But they interact very rarely with matter, they, by a, probably by something called the weak force. They have to interact somehow, or they'd be completely decoupled. <laughs> so there's gravity, and also possibly this weak force, which is the way that, if you've heard the things called neutrinos that come streaming yeah. out of the sun, something like 60 billion per centimeter squared per second passing through the Earth from the sun, so, and, and you don't feel them. They go straight through the Earth, straight through you most of the time. But if they go very close to an atom, a, a, a nucleus in your body, let's say, then they'll interact. And so occasionally, maybe once a week, one of these neutrinos will bump into something in your head you know, because there's so many of them. It's the same with dark matter particles. So these experiments basically look for them just bumping into the detector because they're all over the place. And there's a possibility that that signature may have been seen, but it's
3: certainly rare. Days. Yeah.
1: Ready to pop the question?
3: So this, again, you just mentioned the idea of the the LHC perhaps possibly also helping in the search for dark matter as well. Yeah,
0: because there's a theory called supersymmetry, which is um, a mathematical theory, which is very it's mainstream and it's quite beautiful mathematically and it makes specific predictions that you can test. Uh, and one of the predictions is that there's a, a well, the prediction is that there's a whole mirror world, essentially. And um, so for every, for an electron, there's a particle called the selectron, supersymmetric electron. And for a quark, there's a squark. And for the Higgs, there's a Higgsino. And for the Ws and Zs, there are Winos and Xenos and there's Photinos, all the things. <laughs> so it doubles the number of particles, basically. But it does that for kind of aesthetic reasons. But it does some nice things, like, for one thing, it makes the three of the four forces of nature... Um, when you calculate their strengths and how they vary as you turn back time towards the Big Bang, what you find is that the strong nuclear force, which is one of them, and the weak nuclear force, which is another one, and electromagnetism, which is the third one, kind of converge together. And already we've seen the weak force and electromagnetism converge into one force, Mm -hmm. right? So they're the same thing. So in our theory of the universe at the moment, they're one force, and that works. But the strong force seems to almost do it as well but in, in our standard picture without supersymmetry it just doesn't quite work but with supersymmetry it works and so you get this beautiful picture of these three of the four forces of nature becoming one as you go back to the Big Bang so it's quite tempting That's but going you, backwards, what would yeah, you explain
3: how they split? Well
0: so straight. the picture is as the universe expanded and cooled mm-hmm. then you get these things called symmetry breaking happening so basically um, complexity kind of crystallises out An analogy is like a magnet, actually. If you heat a magnet up, a bar magnet, then it loses its uh, north and south poles. You Mm -hmm. don't have them anymore. And if you let it cool down, then you get this spontaneous lining up of all the little molecules, and and you get the magnetism back. Um, But it's a random direction. The north and south poles won't be the same direction, necessarily, but they'll be there. Mm -hmm. And so it's a spontaneous emergence of order. And in that way, the, the universe seems to behave like that, certainly with the forces of nature. So the idea is there's one force and the universe cools and they crystallize out into three different forces. And that's what we see today. So supersymmetry unifies three of the four forces. But it also provides a candidate for a particle that looks for all the world like a dark matter particle. So it's it's almost there. It's a prediction almost of the theory that there should be dark matter Mm -hmm. particles. Not quite, but nearly. So so if you see any of these supersymmetric particles at LHC, then you have a very strong candidate for understanding what dark matter is. And really the nature of it not only that it exists but what it is it's right. one of these things
2: and the the idea of breaking supersymmetry that was what just won someone a nobel prize is that right um most recent uh did it
0: yeah <laughs> you might be right i'm not sure I, I, it may have done it may I, have passed I think me it by did. Oh, right.
2: uh and and i was going to ask i mean is there a nobel prize in your future though
0: uh <laughs> No, I mean, I would say that there's, no, not I me mean, personally, but there will be, I suspect, Nobel Prizes won by the LHC and by the, the experimental collaborations, and I, I'm part of one of them. But there are, you know, 2,000 physicists on my collaboration called Atlas, which is one of the detectors that looks at the collisions. So, you know, actually, the the, the, the question of who gets a Nobel Prize for great discoveries in these big experimental collaborations is interesting, that it, it may give them to the collaboration, maybe. It's, it's not really clear. So I would expect the thing I work on at LHC, someone will get a Nobel Prize for the work the LHC does.
2: But you might have to fight someone to actually put it They wouldn't it be me. That would, it,
0: if they were going to give it to someone, they wouldn't give it to me. They'd give it to... there's, a, there's a, For example, there's a, a a guy called Lynn Evans, who's a British physicist, who, who could be described as the father of the machine, the LHC. I mean, he's really... He, run, he ran the whole project. So you might think... There's a British Nobel Prize coming to He's Welsh, actually. so a Welsh Nobel Prize. I don't know how many of those there are. I don't even want to go there with what you're do. But the, 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 that would be a natural Nobel Prize. Peter Higgs may get one. He's British. Um, so it's a, it, it would be a great British success he also, story, actually. He already
3: has a particle named that.
0: Well yeah but if, if Isn't but, that, enough? but we No, we don't know it exists though. No, so he might have that's been true. right. The theoretical path, if he's right yeah, and he's so he's probably, there yeah. in Edinburgh at the moment, he's still there watching. He, I mean he wrote he postulated the existence of this thing in the 60s. So he's been waiting a long time. You <laughs> right. <laughs> well,
2: considering the huge British investment in the LHC and the the tie-in with so many British scientists, um, do you think that that will help um, the British community and the British government even look at funding this sort of thing in a in a more powerful way you know?
0: you, one would hope so i mean you really what time is it <laughs> it's a quarter past seven well I've you have just taken us into the polemical into, into, the, into um, the
3: second half of the show I, rebecca there, <laughs> accidentally so i'm just gonna say you're listening to little atoms with me neil denny and rebecca watson we're talking to brian cox and in the second half of the show we're going to talk about science funding so if brian now can answer rebecca's question oh is it the second half of the yes. show now? it just started right, right now.
0: <laughs> not many ads not many commercials <laughs> no. in your show <laughs> no. Yeah, add them later. It's all yeah, it's uh, all product placement. So that's why we're all drinking uh well, water, tap water. Yeah. We're not very good at it yet. Um, science funding. We we spend so little money on scientific research, researching nature, trying to understand the universe that it it's astonishing. I mean, I, I find it astonishing. It's it's something like 0.23% of GDP, let's say. Now you can argue about the figures and so the government always go it's not 0.24. You know, but that—that's roughly how much gets spent on the research councils that give money to universities, and pay for CERN and pay for the European Space Agency, pay for medical research, everything you can think of—nuclear fusion, nuclear power research, everything gets paid for from about 0.2, three percent of GDP, let's say, which is about three and a half billion pounds a year, something like that. So it's a tiny mm-hmm. amount of GDP when you think that that's everything—that's understanding the universe, and the way that our bodies work, and the way that everything works. Right? And you, you imagine where we got with those levels of expenditure. By the way, Britain is below average. So to put it in context, we're a long way down the league table mm-hmm. um, anyway. But not many countries spend much more. Um, and, and yet we've built the modern world. Right? We understand medical science quite well. Mm-hmm. We, can, we can build satellites that go into space. We can have positioning systems, iPhones, whatever you want. We've got it from a few people doing a bit of research because it's underfunded. So I, for the life of me, don't understand why a government, the next government, don't say, well, let's make Britain the best place in the world to do science, right? What would be the impact of that on, on our country? It would be incalculable. Our universities would be, they're already pretty much the best in the world, with the exception of the US probably.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. We have four in the top 10, I think, something like that. So we're doing pretty well. But you imagine, I mean, and, and you, so let's say you went to 0.4% of GDP, right? <laughs> rather than 0.23, would then be world-leading. And it's something you could afford to do. It's, it's a couple of billion, let's say. But then, so you might say, well, that's a lot of money. I mean, it, the government spends something like 600 billion a year, so it's a small amount of money. But then you look at the return. I mean, the, the, a fascinating figure I found from the government Said that 6.4% of UK GDP was physics-based, right? From physics-based industry, 6.4%. Right, that's the financial sector is about eight and a half percent, and yet we spent what a trillion pounds, eight hundred billion bailing out the Mm -hmm. financial sector. That's more money than we spent on science. Since Jesus, right in the U- in the UK, right, it's just you could the whole UK expenditure on, on science, yeah, yeah. He wasn't that great a promoter of no. science ever, really. right? Since ever in the UK is less than than what we spent this year on bailing out the banks. Now that may be a ridiculous thing to say. There'll be politicians listening if they do listen. That will say this ridiculous because we had to bail. I don't care about the argument. It's just to set the scale of the amount of money we mm-hmm. spend. It. it, it and given what I think we all agree science gives to us, which is stops us living in caves, mm-hmm. right? Everything that's been given to us by that. I find it astonishing. Well, I don't know why we don't do that. Why do, Britain doesn't take a lead. And, I mean, America's doing it. I mean, Obama just announced a what, 7% increase, and the aim is to double science research funding through the NSF, the, mm-hmm. the science research body, double it by, I think it's 2020. I think, I think in a decade, they want to double it. Well, that's visionary. Right, And it's because there's a one or two sensible people in Obama's administration deliberately, like the energy secretary who's got a Nobel Prize in physics whose name has just escaped me. But, you know, so there's one or two people. So it doesn't take much political will right. to, to and, and I'll just do point, something wonderful, but I'll, we don't do it.
2: Right. I, I'll just point out that it, it's it's... It's a bit odd, though, to say that America's been doing it because they they haven't until Obama, um, you know, yeah. under Bush. I mean, that was one of the most anti-science administrations ever.
0: It was, but they still... Re, um, yeah, but but still the investment was there, but not... It wasn't increased, right? So it's just the ambition. So that, that, what, what Obama tells me is that if you get one person the prime minister let's say so let's point the finger at Gordon Brown who claims to be a a fan of science the the president of the U.S. in a recession can afford to make a pledge to double science spending in 10 years because obviously it's a sensible thing to do so I these are small amounts of money these are one billion pounds we're talking about not to even in the U.S. you're talking about a few billion dollars which is a tiny amount for the return I mean, probably, you know. If you, I don't know what the number is for the, the amount of the British economy based on science. It's probably about a third, given that physics is six and a half percent on its own, and then you put biotech in there and chemical engineering, engineering,
3: aerospace. You know,
0: I don't know how much it is,
3: but it's a lot. But the the amount spent though is just just one of the facets of this, isn't it? Because I remember from um, you know, the talk you did at Tam London back in back in October was kicked off with a sort of point that. The government is almost changing the emphasis on funding and saying, you know, we want to fund things that basically will bring some sort of economic benefit. But there's
0: that, which is grotesque idiocy at the level that you can't even believe that they I mean, there's there's some sort of petition gone into Downing Street and it's I think there's something like 10 Nobel Prize winners, 50 fellows of the Royal Society and everybody, everybody who's got a brain and some accreditation that shows they've got a brain has written to them and said, that's nonsense and they still do it. But, and I asked the as science minister actually well, how many people does it take who, <laughs> how many Nobel laureates and professors and everything do I have to write to you saying this is idiocy before you actually scratch your head and say no actually maybe you're right
2: Well, and speaking of what it's (laughs) going to take, I mean, so do you think it's going to take a complete upheaval of administration? Do we just need to band together and vote these people out of office?
0: I think that we need to make science an election issue in even the tiniest way. I mean, I've spoken to politicians actually in private, they will say that science loses out. So we didn't win as much as we should have in the growth period of the economy. Now, now you can see that you know there are pressures on everybody but the problem is we, we, we've been pressurized from a low base in the uk because we didn't we didn't lobby at all we have not got a loud voice so what people like us and the listeners with this program and the, the skeptic movement in general i think can do is is begin to be more politicized about the general issue of, of how scientific our society is right because it's, I mean, it's not only research and development which feeds into the economy. Everybody knows it does, but it's also scientific literacy, it's education, it's inspiring kids to go into science. They don't do it because of some government initiative. They do it because of things like the LHC, right? So you do you do wonderful things. You go to the moon. You go to Mars. You find life on Mars, right? Suddenly, the the imagination is captured, and people do things and are inspired, and society grows. And you know, there's now. I mean. Everyone accepts it. If you say the London Olympics in 2012 is going to, the economy will grow because of the inspirational factor of the Olympics. What if, what if Britain decided to go to Mars? Right? What was the inspirational factor? And I can tell you, uh, th- there's a study done by on Apollo, the economic return on Apollo, in 1975, by Chase Economics, and they found that for every dollar spent on going to the moon, 14 dollars came back into the U.S. economy. And that came back because of the inspiration. A lot of it came back from the, the, num- the number of extra engineers and the number of extra scientists and economy. Kids who mm-hmm. got inspired by the Apollo program. It grows the economy. So it's obvious, yeah. but we don't bother, you know, we have a little government initiative to say, let's do this in okay. schools and don't do it in schools, build the LHC, well, right? And then kids get interested because it's interesting.
2: Yeah. And, and just very briefly, speaking of going into space, what about ditching government and focusing on private industry? Look at what Virgin's doing, Virgin Galactic. Mm-hmm. You, you can
0: do that. I mean, one way that we're trying to, to, to get some more money back into British science is to, is to encourage uh, industry to, to invest in a philanthropic way. I mean, it happens more in the States than it does in Britain. And that's complicated, the reasons for that, the tax system and things. But you can do that. But I think the thing is that science is a, a long-term investment, and it's for the public good. And it really is blue-sky science, R&D, in that scale, the LHC, looking – that's stuff that doesn't have an immediate economic return, and therefore it's sensible for the public to fund stuff that has an economic return. You might say, Well, we'll leave that to industry because it has an economic return. So it's doubly idiotic mm-hmm. what the government are trying to do.
3: Well, well we're going to um, quickly in the last couple of minutes. I was going to talk about Brian's upcoming series, Seven Wonders of the Solar System, but <laughs> I just had to say, Look out for that. Be on in March, yeah, yeah it's, it's on in great. March, brilliant. But before we finish. Rebecca this afternoon has invented a new feature for the show so I think we should give this a test outing.
2: Yeah, I asked people on Twitter if they had any questions for Brian and so a lot of people sent me in questions and I thought one was particularly great, um, submitted by Kate Swebb is her Twitter name. And she said that so much has been accomplished in, the, in physics in the past 100 years. Where do you think we're going to be 100 years from now uh, in terms of physics?
0: I hope we'll understand, we will understand the origin of mass in the universe because the LHC will give us that. I hope we understand why gravity is such a weak force. Um, there's something deep, definitely, about gravity. There's the fact that the universe is accelerating in its expansion. We don't know why that is. Uh, there's dark matter. We don't know what that is. So we don't know what 96% of the universe is, let's say. So there's definitely something very deep about our picture of the universe that we don't understand. And it feels a bit like 1900, I think, at the moment, the turn of the last the century, when the wheels were coming off and quantum mechanics, relativity, all these beautiful things emerged. So I think something beautiful will emerge in the next 20 years, something really profound.
2: In the next 20, even.
0: I think so. I think we've got signs that we're beginning to know where to look. And there's a lot we don't understand. And that's the place where you want to be.
2: That's fantastic. Are
3: we? Uh... Yeah, that's about the end of it. And Brian, thanks very much for, yeah, thank um, you for so coming much. in and settling the kitten issue, mainly.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's that's, <laughs> that's really a huge thing. I'm going to really try it. I'm, I'm going to can... try it, though. <laughs> see, I'm going to prove him wrong by experiment.
2: True scientist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Little Adams. You can find details of upcoming guests on our website at littleadams.com. The Little Adams podcast is available on iTunes. Thanks for listening.